everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Dr. Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital, the University of Louisville. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Sushma Reddy and Dr. Mary McBride. Dr. Reddy is a cardiac intensivist at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford University, and Dr. McBride is a cardiac intensivist at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago Northwestern University. At the recent PCICS meeting in December 2020, they facilitated a networking session on growing the next leaders in the field for female faculty. Thank you both so much for joining me today. So you began your session with some staggering facts that women make up over 50% of today's medical students, yet they make up only 3% of healthcare CMOs, 6% of department chairs, 9% of division chiefs, 7% of editors-in-chief of prestigious journals, and only 10% of senior authorship for manuscripts. This really um, surprised me to see those numbers. And I was wondering, but what do you think is responsible for this? Thanks for that question, Deanna. I, I think that, you know, in the lay press, there's all kinds of literature about gender biases and um, impacts of uh, female professional development. And I think that living in a world of pediatrics where the vast majority of us seem to be women, it's hard to imagine that those same types of figures would impact our lives as much, but I, I think that they do. And there's obviously that data to back that up. You know, certainly it's taken some years for the number of women in their early years of training in a medical school to become equal to and now even surpass the number of men. Um, but even within pediatrics, that upper echelon is still continues to be male dominated, as you said. And so I think that there is, uh, you know, an, an innate implicit bias when it comes to gender. Uh, and I don't even think people are aware of it, hence the, you know, the implicit aspect of that. And so I think there's a lot that's um, that people just don't even recognize. And then I also think there's probably some instances where it's at least known to some extent of preference to men or preferential opportunities in the sense of leadership development or uh, leading a project or opportunities that 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 women don't always get handed in the same way. Sushma, what you'd like to add to that? Yeah, um, I also wonder if many assume that women are simply choosing to focus on family out of personal preference and not take on these leadership roles. And in reality, it may be that their current work environment doesn't really support managing both family and career at the same time. And I think this starts very early on in in our careers, such that many move on to part-time work or simply stop working in the field. So we're losing our junior colleagues very early on because we're unable to support them. So it seems to be the work environment that doesn't seem conducive to us. Um, although I have to say just in, uh, in, in my career, I can see how this has changed in such a huge way. There's much more room to change. Um, and while there seems to be this environment that doesn't um, encourage or doesn't promote women, um, if you 
merely look at all the AHA grant awardees this year, um, I think about 75% of them were women. Um, so something is moving in the right direction, I think. Absolutely. I thought that that was a, a really cool thing that you guys also <laughs> shared at the at the um, at the meeting. I think, you know, Sushma, you really touched on something that um, throughout my career I've thought of a lot, which is sort of this idea of balance and women and balancing family and career and you know, this is a concept that I personally have struggled with for a really, my whole career really. And a couple of things strike me about it. One, it's, I've never heard anyone ask a, a male colleague how they balance family and career. And I've, I've taken various approaches to this, to this throughout um, as I've grown in my career, but I wonder, um, what you all think about this idea of balance and how we as um, kind of mid-career faculty mentor junior faculty and fellows and residents and medical students in as they begin to navigate their careers. Uh, I think this is the toughest question you could have asked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and uh, during the PCICS session, uh, several of our junior colleagues asked just this. Um, and I don't think there's one answer that fits everyone. And I think at different points in our career, that balance is different. Um, I don't know if there's anything such as work-life balance. I find the topic so incredibly di difficult. And the last time I attended um, a seminar on work-life balance, it was at 6.30 p.m., which again, obviously shows you're now taking me away from my family. Um, so uh, I think the concept is very difficult um, and we just have to decide at this point in our career, what is my priority going to be? And that may be different five years from now, but we have to decide for ourselves what the priority is going to be. Otherwise, we set ourselves up for um, set ourselves up to feeling guilty, stressed because we're unable to achieve what we want in all the areas. And I don't know if it's really feasible for one person to um, be an exceptional physician, for example, be an exceptional researcher take care of your family, take care of someone who's ill at home. It's just a lot to ask of one person. And I think we need to be kinder to ourselves. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that, you know, kinder to ourselves is probably the take home message throughout this theme. Um, and, and I also agree that there isn't a one size fits all answer here. And I think it's very, you know, very individualized based on what your own needs are, what your own family is, whether it's, you know, your own young children, your old older, your own older children, your aging parents, the combination of the two. Um, you know, there are always different stressors that are happening outside the hospital. Um, you know, and I, I feel like it isn't 
a continuum of balance between work and life, but it's that sometimes your personal life has to win and sometimes your work life has to win. And, you know, maybe it's as you're approaching a grant deadline or a manuscript deadline or you're on service. Those are times where kind of work wins a little bit. And, you know, maybe as, you know, you're becoming a parent or your kid is starting kindergarten in normal times when it's not COVID, um, you know, maybe those are times when your personal life wins a little bit more. Um, but I agree. I think that's such a great example, Sushma, of, you know, these wellness talks or um, life events that happen at 7 p.m. It's like, well, I really need to get my daughter ready for bed. So I don't know when I'm going to attend this talk. I really um, I love that that both of you spoke about um, kindness and just giving ourselves a little bit of a of a pat. And sometimes I think a little bit of grace, I guess. Sometimes I think that we put so much pressure on ourselves as women to be excellent at everything. And I think this idea of achieving this perfect balance really sometimes sets us up for failure and to take a more um, to take an approach where you say, you know, like you said, Mary, sometimes work wins, sometimes family wins, and it may be different for this week, this month, this day, and we just have to um, be kind to ourselves and realize that that um, we can do it all. We just can't do it all at once. So tell me when you are mentoring, one of the questions that I get a lot of female residents who are interested in doing critical care is what is your lifestyle like? What um, what how do you do that? What what do you tell young women who may be interested in a career in critical care? Um, my answer to that often stems from um, comparing my perception of my life to the perception of my cardiologists, my cardiologist colleagues who are not intensivists, in the sense that you know while while I may be running a sprint, you know one week a month or or whatever my you know faculty clinical time is. My colleagues who are um, imaging cardiologists or EP or whomever heart failure, they're running a marathon. And so we're all kind of burning the candle at both ends, but it's how we divvy up our time. And so those of us, when we're on service in the ICU, right, we have early mornings, we often have late nights, we have overnights, we have weekends. And those are very intense and very time consuming. And they pull us, you know, for those of us who take in-house call, they pull us entirely away from our family. Um, and yet those weeks where we're not on service and we're, you know, running our lab or, you know, whatever our academic responsibilities are, tend to offer a little bit more flexibility, at least in the, the things that I spend my non-clinical time doing. I spend, I have a medical education leadership role that takes the vast majority of my non-clinical time. And that position gives me quite a bit of flexibility. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, it's apples to oranges. Uh, but in the ICU sense of things, I feel like, you know, there are weeks where I am completely unreliable in terms of, you know, my husband knows that like the buck stops with him and he's got a, and, and he very beautifully steps up and kind of just takes care of things. He very proudly wears his hashtag girl dad t-shirt. Um, and then when it's, when I'm not on service, then I try to kind of step up and, and take the brunt of things to the best of my ability. So I think that it's, it's apples and oranges and, and any motivated um, individual who is interested in, um, you know, devoting time to a family and whatever that looks like in this day and age, it can be done. 
but as the intensivist, I feel like that's how I try to slice it. I'm a basic science and tra translational science researcher, so I spend half my time doing research. And I think um, critical care is uh, is just such a perfect fit if someone would like to do this, because when you're on, you're on. When you're off, you're off. Um, and I, um, I so respect my outpatient colleagues who are getting calls all the time. But when I'm off, I'm off. I can really focus on something else. Um, but when I'm in the ICU, I'm there 100%. So I think it goes back to what is it that you would like to achieve? And does, um, does this profession allow you to achieve your personal goals? Um, and and I think critical care just fits so well with uh, being a bench scientist. Yes, I, I, I appreciate both of those perspectives. I think that, um, you know, like like you both touched on, my husband, for example, is an allergist. And so that um, schedule is very attractive to many because it's really no weekends, no nights, no holidays. But um, I have been able to attend field trips during the middle of the week with my children because I have more flexibility, like you both said, on my non-service weeks to be able to do things. And that's not something that he can easily do because he has patients scheduled every day of the week. And so there's definitely a trade-off with the nights and weekends and holidays, but it does offer some flexibility to do other things like research or meta-ed or administrative um, duties. And it does allow you to step away from your clinical work completely. You don't have in-basket messages waiting for you to um, fill a prescription or um, review a lab. So it, it, does, it definitely um, has its perks. <laughs> um, so one of the other things that you all mentioned in your session was the topic of pay inequity between men and women. And you presented data demonstrating that women from instructor to chair in academic medicine are consistently paid less and offered less institutional research funding when they join a faculty. Do you have any suggestions for how, as we are navigating our contract negotiations and those sorts of things that we learn this information and are able to be advocates for ourselves? Yes, um, it, it, it's quite staggering, I think, as you see that that pay difference just uh, increases over time. Um, but this is data from a few years ago, and even in the last year, uh, there's been tremendous change. And I think movements such as Black Lives Matter, Me Too, have really set this into motion. California, for example, recently passed a law requiring employers to file equal pay reports annually, and that's scheduled to start this year. And I think many other states have either passed or, uh, or are in the process of becoming more transparent. And there seems to be no signs of the slowing down. So while it may be difficult to do this when you're signing your initial contract, it's now, I think you can easily ask um, and make this happen in your institution if it's not the case already, that on an annual basis, um, your division or your department needs to report at a faculty meeting um, if there is 
pay equity um, between genders. So I think uh, being transparent is the way to move forward. And I think we are all in our rights to ask for this transparency. I completely agree. I think transparency is definitely, I mean, you need data to make any change, right? Just like with anything else. And the lack of transparency leads to a lack of data. And then you don't really have a ground, you know, the, the groundwork to lay on. But the other side of that coin, I feel like, is that, you know, in academic medicine, as you both know, pay is often tied to academic rank. And, you know, along that same trajectory, we have seen um, that women aren't achieving the same academic rank as our as our male colleagues are. And so I, I, I worry, though, that as we start to become more and more transparent, which I agree, I hope I am hopeful and I hope that we continue to do that. But how will that look in academic medicine? Well, it'll be, I assume, you know, male um, assistant professor, cardiac intensivist to female, associate to associate, professor to professor, and those numbers will be equal to each other. But what won't necessarily be as transparent is what's being done to support each individual, make their path forward um, in that academic promotion. And so it's that's the extra piece of it, right? I think the, you know, balancing your outside of work life is somewhat easy with your clinical load as the, you know, what most people are working as a full-time clinician, but what gets you promoted is all that stuff you do extra initially, right? And, you know, I, when I was first starting out down this med ed administrative road, I didn't have protected time. I had to do all this extra to get there. And at that time I was single and I didn't have a child and I couldn't make, not to say that those people aren't busy who don't have children, but um, I was willing to take those nights and weekends and, and put in that extra time. And so now I have much more flexibility in my schedule given my basically other job at the medical school. And so I think the kicker in there, though, is making sure that we support the needs of women wherever they are in their life and whatever their life goals are um, as they make their way up the academic ladder. And that way, you know, those promotions are happening with each um, different level of, of promotion. That's a great point. Um, I, I wonder if we need to really focus on our instructors and assistant professors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in encouraging people to advocate for themselves for um, maybe an extra year or an extra six months for their promotion cycle, if they um, have had life events that that lead them to not being able to devote that time. Um, I think I'm I'm hopeful that as um, you spoke about, you know, pay transparency, that institutions will become more accepting of the I, the idea of having people on different timelines for mm -hmm. promotion. Um, one of the other things that that you all touched on in your session was this idea of implicit gender bias. And I know some people shared some really good stories about this. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's not overt. And one of the things that I think women um, find challenging is using the right words to, to stop this implicit bias, to, to call it out, to bring attention to it, 
while still enabling themselves to move forward at le- as leaders and be seen and taken seriously. Do you have any thoughts on how we can support each other as women and what words and phrases we can use when we see gender bias happening in real time? I wonder if the first step is actually uh, recognizing it. Um, mm-hmm. And and I have to say, um, having grown up in another country, this is not something I even thought about because I grew up in India and gender bias is prevalent. And this is just part and parcel um, of what was expected and the norm. So I think the first step is really educating everyone so you can recognize it. And I think following recognition, only then can we come up with solutions. Um, One story I read, I think in The Economist, was uh, if a senior uh, colleague recognizes gender bias toward a junior female physician, uh, I think it should be up to the senior colleague to try and promote and pull this person up instead of letting them deal with it themselves. Uh, It doesn't mean you have to offer solutions, but to be there, to support them, to acknowledge them, uh, to make sure they are being recognized for the work they're doing, they're being respected for the work they're doing. Um, So I come back to, I think we all need training to recognize implicit bias. Absolutely. And, you know, the nature of implicit bias is that it isn't as on the surface and it isn't as noticeable. It's only it's almost subconscious, if not entirely subconscious. And so it requires people calling it out and it requires education. I totally agree. And and yes, if you are a more senior provider or even just, you know, a colleague at the same provider, it's it is so much easier for the person, you know, not immediately in the threat or in, involved with the comment to, to make to say something about it or to call it out or you know to offer a different way to say something or um, it is going to take an active part on on from everybody male and female alike to to make it better absolutely um i think one of the things that that has struck me in recent times is um being in meetings where um uh, a a female may make a comment and it go relatively unnoticed and then a male makes the comment the same comment and so as another attendee in the meeting i think there are ways to say things like that was a great comment that mary made about mm-hmm. um you know which is a very non-threatening way of bringing the attention back to to mary and mm-hmm. um also helping to move that needle a little bit even subconsciously mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the questions uh, during our discussion was exactly this. How do you Mm -hmm. tackle something like this? Because it seems as though everyone has had instances where this may have occurred to them. Um, And and I think our Mary's and my comment to the team was that um, we need to really support each other. And it could be as simple as saying, that's a great point. Can you tell us some some more about it? Um, so you are 
acknowledging that something was good, you're also opening the forum for further discussion by that person. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think we need to support each other as women. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, you both are certainly excellent um, role models for not just women, but all people coming up in cardiac critical care. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I think that one of the the great things is, like you said, the AHA award nominee, uh, award winners, the fact that we even have this session at PCICS, and now we have a podcast about it. So I definitely think things are are um, improving because we're talking about it. And so I really appreciate your time um, and both uh, Dr. Reddy and Dr. McBride for speaking with me today. We enjoyed having you on the podcast. To all our listeners, Thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you will find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.